them uh, through that door over there. And if you would turn in your Bible to John chapter 4, we continue our study of Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well. But do notice in the bulletin, the centerfold of the bulletin, there's a, a big full outline. I know, surprise, surprise. And news alert, I've decided in my preparation this morning that it would be imprudent to get to point three. I'm not going to do it. It would make too long of a sermon. That's the way it struck me in my preparation this morning. So what I'm going to do with that in the future, I do not know. It's pretty self-explanatory, the text from Romans 1, but I want you to know I'm going to do points one and two and not three. Pastor's error, biting off more than you can chew. We're jumping into the middle of this personal, profound encounter between the Lord Jesus, thirsty, weary, sitting at a well, Jacob's well, it's been there 2,000 years, and a Samaritan woman who's come by herself to draw water. The disciples are in town, Sychar, getting food. And uh, the discussion turns to thirst as an emblematic of desiring God and and then to worship. So we're going to jump in at verse 13 this morning, our sermon title, Worship Gone Awry. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or I have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ, When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I, who speak to you, am he. I was taught in seminary a simple Bible study tool, and that is, ask lots of questions of the text. One of my mentors said, you really get as much out of a Bible story as you ask of it. Ask lots of questions. So I've been doing that with this text. Some of the questions you ask, you don't get answers to. You kind of have to speculate. For example, 
Why is she there alone at noon? But we know culturally that women uh, went to the uh, wells in groups because the jars were heavy, and they went early in the morning because it was hot. So it seems like she is there alone because she's hiding her shame. We think she's a social outcast based on all these marriages and the man she's living with now. And so we're speculating the answer, but we're, we suggest asking that question that she has her reasons for being there, avoiding the crowds. Another question, why does Jesus say, call your husband? Why does he say that? It turns out she's had five husbands and the man she's living with now is not her husband. And we can speculate that the reason Jesus asked for that is if he's going to save her, he needs to show her her sin. He will reveal to her later in town when she goes to town and begins to tell her uh, fellow townspeople about Jesus. She says, come meet a man who told me everything I've ever done. So Jesus' discussion with her is a lot lengthier than what we have recorded. Apparently, he went in great detail with her about the sordid nature of her life. He's exposing her sin to bring her into a saving relationship with Messiah, with the Savior, with himself. One other example of questions that I have of the text that I have to speculate about the answers. When Jesus says, I know you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. The man you're living with now is not your husband. She says, understatement of the century, I perceive that you're a prophet. And then she launches into this thing about worship. Now, and at a superficial level, that's fine. Prophets are in the religion business. She realizes she's dealing with a religious figure. I mean, this guy knows something about her. Only God could know, my goodness. So she wants to talk religion. You worship, you Jews worship there, we worship here. And at a certain level, that's a legitimate discussion. But I in the last couple sermons, have supposed with you that the reason she wants to talk about worship when confronted with her sin is that because ultimately sin is a worship issue. Sin is what you give your heart to. Sin is what owns you. Sin is the most important thing to you. Whatever you esteem more highly than God, that is what you worship. It's an idol. It's sin. The text doesn't say that explicitly. It's a deduction from asking questions about why the dialogue moves on the terms that it does. Okay, so you ask questions of a text, Sometimes you have to speculate about the answers, but there are questions that arise from a text that you do know the answer to because the Bible tells you the answer. For example, why is her life a mess? Now, I don't mean the fact that she's made bad choices, and no doubt she has probably been sinned against. Don't you think of the five husbands she's had there's culpability with the men? I think so. They need Jesus as much as she does. So when I ask, why is her life a mess? I don't mean the details of the bad choices she made where she got to this very point in her history. I mean, why is there some inferior thing that's captured her heart, the need for security and relationship? Why is she a mess? Why are you a mess? The Bible tells us the answer to that question. We thirst for things, water in the story is emblematic of it, that will never satisfy us. And more on that in a future sermon. So why is she a mess? The Bible tells me the answer to that question. Why is her religion messed up? Jesus says you worship what you do not know. Your religion's a mess. 
He was very close-minded about true religion. Very close-minded. There was one way according to Jesus, and I'll get to this in a future sermon too, but why doesn't she know the truth? Some of you may wonder, why are there so many world religions? Really, do you ever wonder that? How can there be so many different world religions if there's only one God and only one way? That's a fair question. And then where did all this confusion start? Human confusion about what I was truly made for? Human confusion about what God is like. Where does it start? The Bible has an answer. It gives specific answers. And it says, go back in time, this is where the Bible starts, to a time and a place where human beings had everything they could possibly want, yet inexplicably stopped obeying the laws, the leader, and the principle that redounded to the good life. They had the good life on steroids. And inexplicably, they refused to do the obvious in order to live by their own wishes. They chose to live as if they had made everything and had ultimate rights over themselves in spite of the blatantly obvious fact that wasn't true. They knew they didn't make themselves. They knew they didn't have rights over themselves. You would say this is insanity producing tyranny leading to chaos. That's how the Bible explains the mess I've made of my life and any degree to which people don't worship the God who is there. They refuse to worship God and choose to exalt themselves. We call that audacious presumption. And this is when worship went awry. All was well in human history until self-worship. You see, you can't move the creator out of his rightful place as the one deserving worship. You can't put the creature in the place of the creator and not have problems. That's a lie, beloved. Is your life based on a lie? Is everything you do, everything you think, a response to the God who is there? Or are you living a lie? in some fashion. Oftentimes, the places our lives are a mess, oftentimes, not always, oftentimes, it is because you're living a lie. Your life is not a response to the obvious. You're a creature. God's the creator. <laughs> so what, what, what exactly did that look like? Let me read the story to you from Genesis. Nope, I'm Getting ahead of myself. No, I'm not. Genesis 3, verse 1. Sorry. Here's the account of this lie destroying life and worship. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was, des- was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. They knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. There's a ton of things that could be said about this text. I'm not going to say them all. What I want to focus on here, number one, is the origins of false worship. And kind of saying, look, why is this woman's life a mess? Why is my life a mess? Why don't people get worship right? Here it is. What are the origins of false worship? I'll tease out several subpoints here. The origins of false worship. Number one, there's no good reason for false worship to exist. No good reason. God created a perfect world. This world reflected his goodness, his genius, his beauty, his glory, his kindness, his generosity. Adam and Eve had 10,000 reasons that God alone would be worshipped and praised, not least the presence of God himself with them. They could see true love, unbridled beauty, glory, truth, wisdom, goodness, righteousness. Look, take anything human beings esteem. The things we know are magnificent and beautiful. Take them, put them together, and multiply them times a billion, and you might come close to what it meant for Adam and Eve to be in the presence of God. There's no good thing lacking in the existence of the first family. God proving himself to be a generous, caretaking father. Think about paradise. They were extremely well situated there. Everything was pleasing. Everything was good. This was the environment of environments. They lacked nothing. They had abundance of everything. They were given control. You control freaks out there, you would have loved this. Adam and Eve were in control. They can name the animals. There's nothing over which they don't have dominion. In fact, they have the specific privilege of extending paradise all over the earth. That's a pretty good job description. The earth is yours. Fill it subdue it, populate it. That's pretty cool. They controlled everything, and they had a perfect relationship with each other. Psychodynamic, emotional, physical, perfect. And they had work, good work to do, really good work to do. And perhaps best of all, they had an ultimate purpose to reflect the image of God in the way they lived, the way they thought, the way they spoke to each other, the way they worked, the way they cared for everything, to reflect back to God something of his glory, his righteousness, his purity, his goodness. What a purpose. And their dependence upon God was tested. We have a test, you all. Pass this test, and it's paradise forever. Chapter 217 Don't eat of that one tree. Yeah, there's 10 trillion times trillion trees on all the earth you can have. There's just one tree, one tree. Don't eat of it. In other words, trust me. 
Stand in your place as creature. Do not become autonomous, a law unto yourself. So we're looking at the origins of false worship, and we're making the point there's no good reason for it. They had everything they needed. Best of all, the presence of God himself. What do they lack? Nothing. B, false worship starts with a lie about God. Everything's well. Everything's worship. What is worship? It is a reasonable response to the revelation of God's glory. That's worship. And and you have in the first two chapters, Jamie can confirm this, he's a Hebrew scholar, kind of a literary thematic melody that goes along in the first two chapters and then when you get to chapter 3, verse 1, instead of, da, la, 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 now the serpent, there's this discordant. Is this right? Where did, how did he get in there? I don't know, but he's there with God's permission. It's no accident. This isn't taking God by surprise. Why was Eve approached first? I don't know. Why didn't they kill him? Cut off his head. That's what you're supposed to do with most snakes. No, okay. Why didn't they kill the serpent? I don't know. Adam's there. Why didn't he step in and defend his bride? Alec Motier, a wonderful Old Testament scholar, said, He falls with as little ease as Eve and certainly as much guilt. And so true worship starts to crumble with a question about what God has said. Satan begins an inquiry aimed to incriminate, impugn, cast doubt on what? On what? The Word of God. Has God said? Eve answers essentially correctly. I won't debate whether or not there was a don't touch in there. I'm not going to get down that rabbit trail. But notice Satan's reply to her. God said, Eve said, look, we're not to touch it. And if we do, we die. And what is, how does Satan respond? You will not surely die. All false worship starts with a lie about God and what he has said. Beloved, what is the first doctrine to be denied in the history of the world? What doctrine's being denied here? The doctrine of a final judgment. The doctrine that we live in a moral universe and God is a just judge. He would be nothing less than God if he didn't call into account every single thing every human being ever did, thought, and did, and did not do that they should have done. The doctrine of judgment is being called into question. How often do you and I think and live in light of the final judgment? Does our culture believe in a final judgment? If it doesn't, it's based on a lie. And you can never have life the way God made it if your life, your existence is based on a lie. Beloved, what's on trial here is the Word of God. And Satan suggests they subject God's superior revelation to their own whims. Don't let the Word criticize you. Stand over it. Decide for yourself what parts you want to obey and believe. Be autonomous. God can't be trusted. 
And so the true knowledge of God is the essential starting point of worship, as one commentator said, starts to sleep lightly and eventually sleeps deeply. And a pattern of sin now is stuck in the heart of every human being. Our inclination is to listen to the voice of the creature rather than the creator. Our heart's inclination and bent is to follow impression rather than God's instructions. If it feels right, do it. And they made self-fulfillment the goal instead of worship. Do you recognize this in your culture? Only you can decide for yourself what's right for you. No one has the right to tell you what happiness is for you. We now live in a world... Listen to a lecture by Tim Keller recently. He gave it at DTS in Dallas, and he said this is, is, in a sense, the first time in world history where instead of truth being out there, it's now in here. But this goes back to the garden. This is the essence of the lie. You're the source of truth. Only you can decide for yourself. And so they were, they were seduced, beloved, by the beauty that created object. The tree was good for food, pleasant to the eyes, able to make one wise, in lieu of gazing upon the beauty of the Creator. What was lacking in the glory of God, looking to God, that they needed this fruit? We, we live a lie if we do the same. Any, to any degree in your life, beloved, All of your decisions, all of them, are not first framed looking to the glory of God. You're you're risking living a lie. The third thing I want to say about the origins of false worship, false worship cannot be trifled with. It carries devastating results. They did die in the day they ate of it. They died spiritually, Their physical death was only a matter of time. They became alienated from self, from one another, from nature, and from God. And worst of all, what we inherit from Adam and Eve is a loss of appetite for God, a loss of longing to gaze upon God, a loss of a sense of need of enjoying fellowship with God. That's the worst thing about it. It's worse than death, having no appetite for God. So if you fear death or if you're getting gravely ill, you're fearing the wrong thing. Your greatest fear should be having no appetite for gazing on the glory of God. And so what happens is all human being, all human uh, um, behavior becomes teleological at heart. It becomes about your motives, what you're trying to get. And so by nature, beloved, you and I were born into this world motivated to find paradise apart from God. Are you? Are you working? Are you doing sex? Are you doing food? Are you using your time, entertainment, relationships with God at the center or on your own terms? Our motives are affected. We now nurture a deep distrust in the goodness of God. I find it in my own heart. I've been walking with Christ 40 years. I still see in my heart a distrust in God's goodness. Do you see it in yours? It's in there. It may be affecting you in ways that you do not know. And as one famous theologian, John Calvin, said, our hearts become a veritable factory producing idols. 
And all that spreads is misery and a cancer of human misery. One Old Testament commentator, Graham Goldsworthy, put it this way, it is impossible for God to be true to himself and at the same time tolerate his own dethronement by the creature, right? Let's suppose you're a kindergarten teacher. You've got your class under control. You've got all these neat things you're teaching your kids. And one of the kindergarten kids stands up and goes, I'm in control. You sit down. Now I'm running the class. It's absurd. It's absurd. To dethrone God? Absurd. He writes, it's impossible for God to be true to himself and at the same time tolerate his own dethronement by the creature. This judgment, you will die, is both inevitable and radical in a sense of striking at the root of the situation. Dead man is sinful man. Man has rejected the kingdom of God. Dead man is man outside the God garden. And God kept his promise. They died. And he'll keep another promise that another man would bring life and undo all of this. And that moves us to our second point. We're asking the question, why is this woman's life a mess? Why is, she, why is her worship a mess? Why is your life a mess? Why is my life a mess? Why would we not get worship right if left to ourselves? Why wouldn't we? It goes back to the origins. And the second thing I want us to see is the hope of the restoration of true worship. So if the first part of the sermon has been a real downer, don't leave. <laughs> Hang on. The text hints at the restoration of true worship on the earth. God comes looking for them. Where are you? Now look, if I was God, I would have made sure they wandered over where the trap door is in paradise. Pull the lever. Done with you. Look what you have done to me. Trap door, right? Go to hell. It's what they deserved. Not not the living God. Where are you? Now, that wasn't for his benefit. <laughs> he knew where they were. In grace, he's calling them out of hiding. Where are you? God's asking you that this morning. The New Testament version is Jesus Christ saying to weary sinners, come to me. Come to me. I will refresh you. Are you weary are you tired? Are you a mess? Do you find yourself incapable of making yourself good enough for God? Come to me. I'll give you rest and refreshment. My heart is gentle and humble. Here we see the gentle, humble heart of God pursuing wretched sinners. He could have easily asked this, what are you now worshiping? So God draws near in grace rather than pushes them away, and he shows that there's going to be a door back into paradise that no man can open but the seed of the woman. God pronounces curses, as he is obligated to, on Adam, on Eve, and on the serpent. In Genesis 3.15, we get what theologians call the proto-euangelion. You want to impress somebody Monday morning at work? Tell them you know what the proto-euangelion is. It's the first announcement of the gospel. God, excuse me, God says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So this begins the essential drama of the Old Testament. When's the seed appearing? Who's the seed of the woman? Who is he? Who is he? Who is he? Who is he? Abraham? David? Moses, one of the prophets, who's the seed? Who's the seed? The Old Testament ends 
He hasn't appeared, but when he does, he'll be the son of righteousness, raising with healing in his wings. S-U-N of righteousness. God promises not to leave this world a mess. Grace is coming. It is an awful world, but he has not abandoned it. Grace is coming. Grace is a man. The second Adam, God's going to get down in the dirt again. And as Jesus begins his public ministry, what does he face? Just as Israel had their time of temptation before entering the promised land, so Jesus, the true Israelite, goes through a time of testing in the wilderness, but he is the second Adam being tested, tempted by the devil in drastically different conditions than Adam and Eve. They were tested in paradise with every single resource at their disposal. Jesus has nothing. Just wild animals and snakes attacking him. No food, no drink for 40 days. And what does Satan say? He's up to his old tricks. Matthew 4, 8 and 9. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said, all these I'll give you if you fall down and worship me. Now, when you read this text, you need to realize that Jesus Christ is on the defensive. He is defending his right and ability to save you from your sins. When you read this text, your eternal welfare is on the line. Where you live forever is on the line. Jesus is doing this for you. And what again is on trial? In the first temptation, what was on trial? The Word of God. What do you think is going to be on trial in the second temptation? The Word of God. Because every time Jesus responds to one of Satan's temptations, his response is, it is written. Man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Jesus is standing on the Word of God. And he knows that Satan's claim to be worshipped is a sham. Such worship would be a lie. Yes, Satan is the ruler of this fallen earth, but he's not worthy of praise and glory. He doesn't deserve it. You know why he's the ruler of this world? Adam and Eve forfeited it. He's a loser. All right, so I checked with Rock at, at, at the Sunday school hour today. If you're a professional golfer, it would be a dream of mine, but not one day. It's long past you're a professional golfer. You kill the field by 20 strokes. You are, un, you are undeniably the winner. And you go into the tent and you turn in your scorecard. You have to sign your scorecard. You actually have a scorecard for your opponent. You sign your scorecard. If you get your score wrong, if you give yourself a better score, you're disqualified. You get nothing. You lose. Adam and Eve signed a stupid scorecard. They forfeited the victory to Satan. So now Satan is the ruler of this world. They forfeited the right to rule the world in righteousness. Not King Jesus, the Lord of righteousness. No, he is Lord of all. He's reclaimed the world as his. And he proved it, beloved, by his obedience to and worship of his Father. Jesus came to give God, the worship you, oh God. He did it with all of his being. And yet, in the strangest twist of human history, he gets treated the last day of his life as if he was an idolater, as if he had committed all of the false worship of all of his people. 
because he goes to the cross in place of false worshipers. The penalty for false worship, death. Ironically, what did they accuse Jesus of? Why did they put him to death? Blasphemy. We're the blasphemers. Our false worship is saying what's untrue about God. God takes all of that, throws it into the body of his son. Jesus removes it on the cross. He offered up to his father all the true worship you owe God, and he took the penalty that, for, that your false worship deserved. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Here's the last point in the sermon. Can you see why we didn't have a third? Worship stands on a platform of grace. Grace and mercy and the love of Christ. If you know him by faith, you've answered the call, come to me. You've bowed the knee, my Lord and my God. It means you now are worshiping God as one clothed in the beautiful righteousness, the perfect worship of Jesus. Even though inside you feel like stink, that's okay. Christ has made you an acceptable worshiper, clothing you in his beauty. In his beauty. And I think that's why most of you continue to come to worship. You know when you walk through those doors, I'm not worthy of doing this. My worth is in Jesus. I do it in spite of how I acted yesterday. I do it because God deserves it. I do it expressing my trust in the finished work of Jesus. One hymn writer put it well. He wrote, To Christ the Lord, let every tongue its noblest tribute bring when he's the subject of the song who can refuse to sing. Survey the beauties of his face and on his glories dwell. Think of the wonders of his grace and all his triumphs tell. Let's pray. We do declare the triumph of your perfect worship over our failures. We declare the triumph of your cross and resurrection. You've raised us from the dead to join that heavenly chorus that is ever praising our God, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God who was and who is and who is to come. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive glory and honor and power and riches and dominion now and forever. What a privilege to join that chorus. May our lives in word and deed reflect this worship. Our whole lives be a response to the grace and unfailing mercy and love of the gospel for Jesus' sake. Amen. So today as we come to the table, we're not going to have a written confession and assurance of pardon. We're going to sing it as Andy leads us. Please stand and sing together.